All right. Tonight, the goal was to finish thesis number eight. And thesis number eight is that really long thing. <laughs> thesis number eight is. Yeah, go ahead and tell me. All right. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins and the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. We've looked at a number of passages of scripture. The key verse really for this thesis was what? 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, all right, talking about a lawful way of using it, the law, and which would imply an unlawful way. All right, I think, I think that's maybe the key verse of the whole study in some ways, uh, but it's very important. So remember that. Uh, we made it through, we made it all the way down to where they say the second part of this thesis tells us that the word of God is not rightly divided if the gospel is preached to such who live securely and their sins. And we had just kind of started, we, we made it uh, through Matthew chapter 7, and we started advancing that, and then we ran out of time. So the goal would be to finish that, but we may try to, we may try to see if we can advance it to, to some level, but we're going to stop, and we're going to address something that someone sent to me, and see, uh, I think we've kind of addressed this already, uh, the main thing we're going to do is try to address this more to, in how it would impact the, the concept of law and gospel. All right. So this is from one of my friends in Nebraska, and he's teaching uh, the teenagers at his church tonight. And he is teaching them the most influential books in church history. And he, he went from like early church history all the way up to modern church history. And some of you should know the name of this book, Wild at Heart. Okay, you probably remember that book, okay, because that book created a lot of problems, did it not? Anybody remember some of the problems that book caused? Open theism. Yes, that was, that's really kind of the, uh, the, the book that really sparked a lot of that discussion about it. So he sent me this, Law and Gospel Discussion and an article on Wild at Heart. I came across this article doing a little reading on influential Christian books since 2000. This article is a review of Wild at Heart. This section I pull, that I pulled this from, this quote from is, and this is the name of the section, problem number two, relying on the regenerate heart. Relying on the regenerate heart. Now remember, we've had this discussion, have we not? Remember, there are, there are at least two schools of thought within Christianity, right? One school of thought says that what is the condition of our heart before salvation? Depraved, Depraved right? Now, we can get to a whole argument about Jeremiah 17.9 and why the Septuagint doesn't translate it the way the Hebrew text does, and they're completely night and day. We can get into that whole discussion. I've talked about that on the podcast recently, but Jeremiah 17.9 is the go-to verse which says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Correct? All right. So th this, is, this is view number one. That that's the condition of the heart before salvation. Everybody says? 
Amen, right? Okay, amen. The only people who would disagree with that view would be whom? Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, would, if they're honest, they don't believe in a total depravity because they believe the heart is free enough to accept God. All right, so, so we would go with the idea that the heart is completely unregenerate and the heart is wicked and the heart is deceitful. Now, view number one would argue, even after salvation, the heart remains sinful. The heart remains you know, corrupt the heart. There's a major problem with the heart. Yes. Okay. That view would still say, look, we still have a sinful nature. The heart is still wicked. The heart is still deceitful. That is still true of every person who is saved. Got that? View number two says what? You start off an unregenerate heart, but the moment of conversion You get a new heart. You get a new nature. And the old is gone and all things have become new. Now, the weird thing about this one is they still try to claim that, that, well, you still have a sinful nature. So remember how confusing it got? Does everybody remember this discussion? I'm hoping because this was an important discussion. All right. Remember, it gets really confusing. I kept making a joke like we almost need a, a chart or a diagram, right? Because, okay. So, do we have a new heart or an old heart, or do we end up with two hearts? Do we have an old heart, but a new nature? And if we have a new nature, then what do we, how does the new nature differ from the heart? Are the heart and the nature synonymous, or heart and nature different? When we speak of the heart, are we speaking of our nature? Or do we have, so can we have a a new heart, but an old nature? Right? Or do we have an old heart and a new nature? Like, how does this, do we have a new heart and an old nature? Do we have a, do we have a new heart and a new nature and an old heart and an old nature and they both remain at the same time? Anybody got any answers for that? Okay, okay, that, okay, to me, that's the way to approach it, right? Like, I can sit here and I can go from verse to verse to verse trying to figure this out. And sometimes it will seem like it's contradicting each other and it's all convoluted, right? What a minute. No, you have a new heart. I mean, we, all, we obviously know immediately when we get to 2 Corinthians, we have a problem when it says, you know, behold, anyone in Christ is a new creature. Old things passed away. All things have become new. We know immediately that can't be true in what way? Practically, because what would be the ramifications of saying that? That we should basically be sinless, right? So my thing is, here's what I know. Through the entire history recorded in the Bible and everything after the Bible has demonstrated one thing. That no matter who believes in God, they continue to do what? Sin. And it, and what else is, what else can we say that's true of every person who's believed from biblical history all the way till today? What can, there's the first thing we can say, they continue to sin. What's the second thing that we can dogmatically say? They cannot keep God's law perfectly. Right? We continue to sin, and they cannot keep God's law perfectly. Now, the minute we acknowledge those two things, people are going to keep sinning, and they cannot keep God's law, then there has to be an explanation to why. And the only explanation would be what? 
They still have something inside of them. There's still a sinful nature. Now, if you want to say, well, the heart, the heart has changed. Well, if the heart has changed, guess what? That changed heart is not enough to overcome the sinful nature because if it was over, it was able to overcome the sinful nature, then we would stop sinning. And if we can't stop sinning, if we can't keep God's law, then what's the dominant force inside of us? The sinful nature. Now, nobody wants to admit that and everybody will lose their mind. But this, so sometimes, now this is very important. Sometimes when we get into these theological issues, sometimes what we have to do is just go, wait, stop, stop, stop. Because you're going to quote your 50 verses. I'm going to quote my 50 verses. And you're going to say, well, that verse only applies to lost people. And I'm going to say, no, that verse applies to saved people. And it's just, it's just going to argue, 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 argue. And that's why I can't stand those arguments. There's no point. You got... Just well, just take your head and slam it into a cement wall 50 times because it would be more valuable than having the discussion. It's like trying to argue with a charismatic about healing, right? Healing is guaranteed in the atonement. Well, then I'm not going to argue with you. You're going to quote Isaiah by a stripe is healed. That's, that's quoted in Matthew. I think it's referred to also in Peter. Okay, whatever. You quote your scripture. At some point, I'm just going to stop and say, here's the reality. Correct? Right? So sometimes when it comes to this issue, I, look, you can quote all, I don't even, I don't even like having a, a scriptural argument about it. Here's what I know. Christians still sin, and I, there's never been a Christian who's been perfect, and every Christian that I know cannot keep God's law perfectly. And I can give them the three, three scripture tests, right? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as he is holy. Has anybody ever pulled that off? No, if nobody can pull that off, then we have to explain why. What's the only explanation? We're still corrupt on the inside. And if you say, well, you have a new heart, you have a new nature. Obviously, which is more powerful? The old. End of story. Like, to me, I'm done. That's, That's the end. Let's move on. Let's move on. All right? So make sure we understand these two views, right? Our heart's depraved. We get saved and the corruption remains. What, whatever you want to say. I don't know how you want to describe it. Old heart, new heart, new nature, old nature. Corruption is still there. Got it? The other view is you go from an unregenerate heart to a regenerate heart and it's completely new and it's not t- uh, tainted with sin in any way, shape, or form. Right? But... Even if you say the heart is completely regenerate, if the old nature is still there and if the old nature dominates and has more power than the new heart, what's the point? I mean, what do you, does it make you feel better? I've got a new heart. Yeah, and the old nature is still more powerful. So, what, what, yay! What, 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 I don't know what good that supposedly did for you, but okay. Let's see what they have to say here. All right? Now, remember, this is an article... Uh, is a review of Wild at Heart, and this is in a section that says, Problem 2, Relying on the Regenerate Heart. Here's how this review starts. When I wrote the original review of Wild at Heart in 2003, I was of the opinion that the regenerate heart was at least partially corrupt. Similar in many ways, to the unregenerate heart. Now, this is what this person wrote in, in their original review, is that the, un, that the regenerate heart is still similar to the unregenerate heart, right? That there's some similarity in some way, shape, or form. 
Again, I think if you just really start talking about it, you can see how confusing it gets. Do I have a new heart, old heart, new nature, old nature, a new mind, old mind? Because there's all this imagery that's used in the Bible, right? The old man, the new man, put off, put on, all this stuff. And you're like, so am I old? Am I new? I'm a new creature, but I'm still old. I got to put off. Like, I don't know if, I, if what, what I'm putting on. I don't know what I'm putting off. I just know that there's a lot of language used that is very convoluted when you try to be like map it out. All right. Because you would think, it, I wish they would just use one word. Like heart and nature is referring to the same thing. Then, then we would have some place to start, but okay. Now, here's what they say. All right. I based this opinion on my former understanding of passages like Jeremiah 17, 9, which reads, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Look at Mark 7, 21 through 23. Mark 7, 21 through 23. And what do we find there in Mark 7, 21 through 23? What do we have? Do we have anything about the heart? Depraved? Sin? Okay. Okay, so let's look at this. Uh, And I'm going to read from a different translation. Uh, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Now let me ask you, in all your years of being a Christian and even looking at your own life, have there been evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That is as much a common thing in the life of believers as it is in unbelievers. Now, if I say the heart has been completely changed, then what, what would be the obvious question? Then where did these come from? Inside a believer. Because it's saying it comes from where? From the heart. So if I have a new heart, guess what shouldn't be coming from inside of me? All of that stuff. All right? Um, they, and then he says, with the parallel passage in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, who says basically the same thing as the Mark passage. All right? So he says, based on his understanding of those passages and on various statements from godly teachers like Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards, who described the regenerate heart using words like depraved, defiled, and corrupt. Please note, Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards refers to the regenerate heart as what? Depraved, defiled, and corrupt. You tell some people that the regenerate heart is defiled, depraved, and corrupt. They will lose their mind on you and probably, who knows, they're going to call you, I don't know what you'll be called. You'll be called something and then they're going to be basically say you're wrong. Now, while they say that, they'll probably demonstrate uh, all the kinds of sin and you'll probably want to ask them where is that sin coming from because you seem to have anger and you seem to be making accusations that are not true. And, but, but they won't acknowledge where it's coming from, but... It's coming from inside. 
Um, well, he kind of believes in the eradication of the old man, so that he, it's, it's, it would go the opposite, the other direction, okay? All right? And we've, we've looked at that a little bit. We'd have to go back through all of his writings because it's somewhat convoluted. But at least according to this, these men would say that the regenerate heart is what? Depraved, defiled, and corrupt. Now, this author of this review says this, having studied this matter in more depth for the past few years, I must admit that I was wrong. I fully agree with John Eldridge from the book, Wild at Heart, when he says to the Christian, your heart is good. In the core of your being, you are a good man. Page 144. You are a good man. Now, what would be the logical conclusion of that truth? If at the core of my being, I'm good, everything that flows from the core of my being should be good, meaning that my actions should be good. And if there's anything other than good, I've got a weird thing to figure out, right? Where is the bad coming from? Because all the bad seems to be gone. So where's the bad coming from? Now, this lead, you know what this kind of leads to? This leads to the idea we blame other people. It's got to be someone else's fault. It's got to be someone. It's Netflix's fault. It's Hollywood's fault. It's the porn industry's fault. It's alcohol. I've got to blame it on other, because it can't be me. Or, yeah, or maybe, maybe redefining what, what bad is, right? So that you can still claim that it's good. They says these statements are simply a reward, a rewording what Jesus said to himself, said himself in Luke 6, 45, where it says the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. They also reflect what Paul said about Christians new self being created in righteousness and holiness. And guess what verse they quote? Second Corinthians 5, 17. Now, it is true that Jesus makes an argument about the good man. Go to Luke chapter 6, just so that we see this. Now, we're going to have to look up all of these scriptures here in a minute, but I'm going to make the point, and then we'll come back and look at some of these scriptures. Look at Luke 6, 45. Right now, let me just remind you, this is very important in theology. Uh, It's still there, right? No? It's still there. Okay, it's still there. Right? Everybody can hear me, right? Okay, all right, don't scare me. Okay, don't scare me. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I don't want to lo- lose the recording. That would be bad. Okay, I'm going to go back here and make sure. Now you're scaring me. Okay, all right. Make sure we're still live on the air, okay? Are we still good? Are we still good? All right, test, test. Yes, we're still there. Okay, all right. Okay, oh, oh someone in the comments just put, um, or it's Satan's fault. That's a good one, right? Blame Satan, Right? And that's a common thing within Christianity. Even people who've never thought this all through, even people who've never thought this all through, Christians love to blame Satan. 
I mean, Satan's the blame for everything. I mean, listen to sermon after sermon after Satan. If you, do, if you don't pray enough or if you don't read your Bible enough, Satan will do this. And it's like Satan is walking around literally omnipresent and, and he's at every Christian getting them to sin. The sin comes from inside of us. All right? The, 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 the problem is inside. But look at Luke chapter 6. And what I was going to say before we thought that we had lost, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you the verse in just a minute. I just want to make sure I set this principle up. And, and because this is, this is the thing in theology that drives me crazy. Because when you get into these arguments, and if you've ever been into these theological arguments, you know what happens, right? You quote a scripture, they quote a scripture. You quote a scripture, they quote a scripture, and it just basically becomes death by cross-reference, and nobody actually listens to the other person's scriptures, right? My scriptures trump your scriptures, and they think their scriptures trump my scriptures, and it just becomes, it's a waste of time. It's just, as soon as that starts, to me, just stop talking and just say, who cares? Believe whatever you want. It's a waste of time, right? There's no point in engaging in it. But in many of these issues, it, it cannot be resolved just merely by throwing scriptures at it or looking at one scripture, right? So in this situation, whatever Jesus means about the good man, here's what I have to know. There aren't any good men, because if there were good men, they would be, the, the po- probability and possibility would be what? That they would be good in everything, in thought, word, deed, and desire. Because they're good at their being. Now there, I, so whatever Jesus means, he can't mean that. Because if he meant that, then I just need to know where are the good people. But many Christians are like, well, you know, we're the good people. And it's those liberals out there that are the bad people. No, you're the problem, not them. You're the, look at yourself. So what could Jesus possibly be trying to say here? Look at Luke 6. Go to verse 45. Luke 6. Luke 6. Everybody there? Look at verse 45. Or go to 43. And tell me what you, uh, you think you find. Look, just read it yourself and you can tell me what you think you find. All right, good. So, someone just tell me we're still live on the air. Okay, good. All right. Thought everything had gone bad. All right. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. For a good tree bringeth forth not or good for a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit. Uh, neither doth a corrupt tree bringeth forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather uh, figs, nor of bramble br- bush Gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. All right? What do you think Jesus is trying to get across here? Okay. 
Okay. Well, first of all, well, we got to be careful how we define that, okay? Because if we're not careful, we're going to kind of walk into a, a, a major heresy. So let's make sure we understand this. When we say certain things come out of us as good, we got to make sure we define what we mean by that. Good according to what standard? Anything that comes from me, is it truly good according to God's standard? Now, if y'all believe it is, then, then congratulations, because I'm going I'm to get video, because I need to see how that works for you. But, well, again, it's one of those things where some scriptures make it sound like you do something, it's good, and then, but then it says that even our most righteous his acts are filthy rags. So, I mean... Okay. Well, I just want to make sure we understand this. When we say good, it may be good according to a human judgment or human standard. It can be good according to God's standard, because what is... Anything that does not conform perfectly to God's standard, what is that called? What is it called when something does not conform to God's standard? Sin. Do we, are we, in anything we do, love, joy, any of this, even the supposed fruits of the Spirit, do any of us do those in a way that conforms perfectly to God's standard? No. So that means even our good actions are, are sinful. Right. So our good, you're right, from a human perspective, okay, that's good, that's, that's better than that, right? From a human perspective, we can judge an action and say, well, that's better than that, that's better than that, that's better than that. Can we agree on that? All right. So what is Jesus saying here? Look at the text and tell me. Well, so what is Jesus saying? Okay, well, clearly it's showing that our, everything that comes out of, ever, everything we do and everything we say comes from where? The heart. All right? Now, you can sit there and say, well, then Jesus is saying there's good people. I would say, okay, you, you play that little game, that there's good people because of what Jesus would say. I would say, no, Jesus would demonstrate you're good based off what you do, Right? And so I would take, then let's judge everyone's actions, and what would everyone's actions conclude? We're not good according to which standard? God's standard. So Jesus is saying, how do you, how do you know what's going on inside? By observing the outside. When we observe the outside, what can we honestly say about our inside? Still corrupt. I would think this text would actually disprove their argument. Because if you're good, what should I see? Good! And I don't judge good based off the good old boy standard of West Texas. We judge good according to God's holy standard, which would be holy in thought, word, and deed, internally and externally, and that good would have to be personal. Exact. Entire, right? Perpetual, right? Okay, remember all the things that we've talked about over and over? So, so immediately we would, so the thing is, is how are you judging the supposed good? Jesus' argument is what we do demonstrates what we 
are and what I do constantly demonstrates what I am is what? A sinner. And what you do constantly demonstrates what? That you're a sinner. Is everybody okay? Everybody got that? Okay, so I, I, th- I think that's a very important point. All right, so now he quotes some other scriptures. We'll, we'll come back to these because obviously that one created a little bit of problem, but we'll work on that, all right? So uh, he says that um, one simply cannot find language in the New Testament to affirm my former opinion. According to him, that there's nothing in the Bible that would argue that we're still sinners. After salvation. After salvation. Or that we, that we have an unregenerate heart after salvation. Now, he, he probably would still say we're sinners, but he, hasn't, he wouldn't be able to explain where the sin comes from. Because according to him, we're good now. We're good. Yeah. And the writer and the, the, the one who did the review, he's changing his previous review. And he's agreeing with Eldridge on, on, on how uh, uh, Wild at Heart handled this. Right, he says there's nothing. Now, it's pretty clever, of course, the way he does it, because what is he doing? He's running to certain passages, because he obviously believes Jeremiah 17.9, and Mark no longer applies, and he would, he would argue, and I, I guarantee you, you know what he would argue. I mean, what passage would everyone think they would go to? Well, 2 Corinthians would prove his point. Okay. Or the way he inter- interprets it. Okay, what passage would we go to to demonstrate that he's wrong? That we still, because he says there's not one passage in the New Testament. What about or, or, there we go. That's the one I would go to, right? Isn't that the one to go to? Yeah. Romans 7, right? Yeah. Things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And then the key, remember the key in how Romans 7 ends? Remember, I told you, like, I, I said this, like, a, a thousand times, that we cannot forget the last verse of Romans 7 because everyone ignores it. The, the way the chapter ends. With my mind, I serve the law of God. In my flesh, I still serve the law of sin. Wait a minute. That wouldn't seem to indicate what still exists. Boom, there you go. So he says there's no verse that he could, pro- could prove that. It's right there in Romans 7. And every time I listen to sermons on Romans 7, guess what verse gets completely left out? That verse. Now, how do, how do people like him handle Romans 7? Paul wasn't saved at that time. Which, of course, is bizarre. Right? Yes? All right. Now, he goes on to say, one simply cannot find language in the New Testament to affirm my former opinion, which is also the opinion of many other Christians, that the believer's innermost being, listen, that the believer's innermost being is vile or corrupt even after uh, regeneration. I am now convinced. Everybody ready? This is very important. Pay attention. I am now convinced that Mark 7, Matthew 15, and Jeremiah 17 refers to the heart of an unregenerate person. It no longer refers to a regenerate person. 
All right, did you have something? You were looking, did you, did you, have, did you have a verse? Oh, okay, Jeremiah 17, 9. Yeah, he's saying that's the unregenerate heart, Mark 7, which we've already looked at. And then Matthew 15 is the cross-reference to Mark 7, which says the same thing. He's saying all of those are for the unregenerate person, not the regenerate person. Now, of course, he, he doesn't mention Romans 7, but it wouldn't matter if it mentioned Romans 7 because you see what his, his game is, right? What's the, what's the way he's playing the game? Any verse that would seem to indicate that we're still sinful is not referring to us as saved people. It's referring to us as what? Unsaved people, right? That, that would, you only have two options, right? Saved or unsaved. You only have two options, right? Okay, so... This is, the, this is the point I wanted to make tonight, all right? Now, do, do, we, do we need to look at any more verses? Because I feel like, I feel like I'm just losing everybody here. All right? I want, because I thought, I, I thought we had already covered all of this one. I want to make sure we're good to go. Is everybody sure we we're, we're, uh, understand? I think, uh, I think when we went back to Romans 7, it's kind of... Okay, so just make sure we under... I want to make sure we're on... on, on uh, uh, we've got to make sure we have this down, okay? All right, so... View number one is what? Before salvation. Oh, well, both views will, will say before salvation. So, view number one is that after salvation, that we still have corruption. I don't know which words we want to use. I don't know if we want to refer to the heart. We want to refer to the nature. Because everyone will argue over that. So, I, so I don't want to play that game. I'm not going to say heart. I'm not going to say nature. Because I'm not going to fall for that trap. That, they're tra- that sets you up. I'm going to say, I know this. There's still corruption. What is our, our, and I don't even need to quote scripture to prove this. How do I know corruption is still there? Because Christians continue to sin. Not only do Christians continue to sin, what else do we know about Christians? We talked about this already. I, I, I gave you the two things when we covered this the first time, right? We continue to sin and we cannot keep God's law. Right? Remember, those two things are factual, correct? Right? So you see, my, the way I would approach this view is, this view says we're still corrupt, and the reason we know we're still corrupt, I don't even need to quote a scripture, right? Because Christians still sin, and we cannot keep God's law. How do I know we can't keep God's law? Well, because I can give you three tests. Remember, what are the three tests? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as God is holy. Nobody has ever pulled that off. No one, no one ever pulls that off. So that means corruption is still there. View number two is what? You have an unregenerate heart before salvation. At salvation, you go from an unregenerate, not a good person to at your very core, at your very being, you're now good. You no longer have a sinful heart. Now, what's the logical ramifications of the second view? Well, you try to quote Luke 6 to prove it, but Luke 6 would actually be a double-edged sword, right? If you've got a good heart and you're a good person, what should be flowing from you? Good. Nothing but good. And what do I know? Good doesn't, is not the dominant thing. 
So even if you want to say you have an, a, a new heart, even if you want to say you have a new nature, what do we all know about the supposed new heart or new nature? It's weaker than the remaining corruption inside of us. Because if it wasn't, if it was stronger than the remaining corruption, what would be the logical conclusion? We wouldn't sin or we could stop sinning, which doesn't happen. Now, okay, that took a long time. All right. Now, so is everybody, so we, we're sure we're good on this. We're sure we're good on this, right? Okay. Now, here's, here's the million dollar question. This is the only reason I wanted to cover this tonight, right? Because I felt we had already covered this before, but just, I got to make sure. I get nervous when I, I, I get that feeling that I'm losing everything. Because this is like, this is like absolutely fundamental. This is like, this is like the, the essence of so much of what we've talked about, all right? We've got to make sure we have this down. Because it's, it's seemingly it's becoming more and more prominent, I think, for Christians to almost act like that the old nature is completely gone in some way, shape, or form, which is just insane to me, right? I don't, I don't know why. Like, as much sin as there been in the church and in the lives of people, you would think that nobody would even go to this. But I think, I think there, I know there's a reason why, but we won't get into that right now. All right, so here's, what, here's the million-dollar question. If we go with this second view, Right? That wild at heart seemed to promote and this person who did the review seems to promote. Right? That now we're good. What does that do to the concept of law and gospel? What is its ramifications? Because remember, the person who asked me this was asking us in the context of our study on law and gospel. So what are the ramifications to the doctrine of law and gospel if the second view is true? Well, let's do with this. What's the ramifications of law and gospel if the first view is true? Okay, let's try it this way. If the first view is true, right? If the first view is true, law constantly does what? Confirms the reality of that position, right? If view number one is true, what should we find? That the law constantly reveals what in us? Our sin. So then what do people in the first view, what do they need constantly? No, the gospel. Because the, the, the law is constantly going to, I mean, they, I mean, they need the law if they don't think they're no longer a sinner. But the law is constantly going to be telling, anytime you read the Bible, what do you realize? Right? I mean, true? Just start reading the Bible. Go home and just start reading the Bible. How long is it going to be like, well, I don't do that. I did that. Oh, I do this. I do that. I, yeah, I fall short. I fall short. I fall short. I fall, I fall short. Right? Pray without ceasing. Rejoice evermore. Be anxious about nothing. I can just go on and on and on. Scripture after scripture after scripture. Right? And what do you find? Love the Lord God. Uh, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. As a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk that you may grow thereby. Study to show yourself approved. I can just go all day, right? Anytime I read, what do I realize? I don't fall, I don't, I don't accomplish these things. So therefore, there would be, a, a, in the first view, why would law and gospel need to be clearly distinct? Because the law would still be condemning because the people are still sinning. 
And the gospel still needs to be preached to them because that's their only hope because the gospel declares that the reason they are, are not condemned is because of an imputed righteousness. Now, let's throw that first view out and say that it's completely wrong. Now, let's say the second view is correct. Now, what does that do to law and gospel? Well, I mean, if the, if the second view is true, this wouldn't be that they, they think they're good. They wouldn't need the gospel. Well, I'm, okay, now, I'm saying if their view is true, right? I'm saying if their view is true, remember how I always handle disagreements. What do I always do with a disagreement? I agree with it. I agree with it. So I'm saying, let's say our view is completely wrong. I think it makes perfect sense because I think law and gospel actually proves the first view to be true. But let's throw out the first view. It's wrong. All of you have been wrong. Okay? You're all heretics. Right? The, the correct view is we're good people with good hearts. We're new creatures. The old is gone. We're good at the very core of our being. All right. Now, if that is true... What, where does law and gospel come into play? What would, what would be the purpose of law? What would law do for you? If, that, if this view is true, what would law do for you? No, okay, remember, the, we're go, the view is true. We're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. We're, the old is gone. No, no, we're going with the idea that the view is absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct. So we're good. At the core of our being. What would law do? Wouldn't law be then the confirm how good we are? Right? Right, it wouldn't be a convicting thing. No, yeah, forget reality. Let's say this view is true. That's the only, that's in theology, that, to me, that's the only way to argue. Okay, your view is right. Now let's go with it. It confirms that we're good. The law would be there to say, you're good, you do it, you got it, you got it, you got it, you got it, right? That's what it would be for, right? But you wouldn't fall short in this view. Why would you fall short? Where would the fall short come from? Because you're good at the very core of your being. Remember, that's what they said, right? Okay, so I'm saying, so then law, so I just want you to see the devastating consequences it would have. The law would be simply there to do what? So that you can put a star next to your name, right? Isn't that how it works in school, right? There's a standard, yes? Okay? You take a test. For the student who always makes an A, what does the test do? It's a chance for them to show off. It's for, the, for them to walk around the class going, oh, you are idiots, look at me. 
valedictorian right here. Okay? I'm the smart one. What's wrong with all of you? You can't do anything. The te- they don't see the test as a threat. Now they may pretend, which I take is usually false humility. Oh, I'm so worried. And you just want to say, we're worried about what? You've never made less than an A in your entire life. Stop, stop with the nonsense, right? But some of them will play that game. But you, you, the other students catch on really quick going, I know, you're so worried. So then you can tell everyone, look what I got. I got an A. Okay, but so the, te- the test there is simply what? An opportunity to show how smart they are. For everyone else, the test is what? An opportunity to be shown how dumb you are and how much you don't know and embarrassing and humiliating. Well, if we have a sinful nature, what is the law going to always show? Failure, 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 failure. If you're good at the core of your being, the law would be there to give you the gold star. So you can walk across the stage going, I'm smarter than the rest of my class. I'm smarter than the rest of my class because I had the highest grade point average and all of you are dumb. Well, this system would lead to that. Okay, good. Okay, keep that in mind. Well, we're going to we're gonna get to that in a minute because that would be the obviously, you'd have to go there, okay? All right, so the law would be simply there to just show you how good you are, all right? What would be the second re- re- uh, consequence of this when it comes to law and gospel? Keep the, th- the, keep the one you said it in, your, in your mind. What would the gospel be for? You wouldn't need the gospel, You wouldn't need the, why would you need the gospel? You needed it to get saved, but from that point, you don't need it. In fact, you wouldn't even need imputed righteousness, would you? Right, right. In theory, why? You're good at the very core of your being. You would not even need imputed righteousness. And that's why imputed righteousness is almost never spoken of in many evangelical churches, only in passing, because it's all about what kind of righteousness? What you do, what you do, what you do, what you do, and then what do we constantly say in the evangelical world? You can do it! And why do they say you can do it? Because they say the old is basically what? Gone. So then the gospel becomes what? Well, listen to how this works. The law is simply there to show you how good you are. And the gospel, whether they wanted to do this, the gospel became the means in which gave you the power to be good, meaning they turned the gospel into an infused righteousness and not an imputed righteousness therefore utterly destroying law and gospel. And then the third result of this would be sin in someone's life is an indication of a lack of salvation. Well, the, not, maybe not to the extent that Wild at Heart says it, right? Just always remember, just... Always remember, there's variations, right? A concept, once a concept enters into Christianity, right? The, usually the original concept's name gets dropped, right? And then the, like, there, you've got friends you know who are Christians or as Pelagian or semi-Pelagian as you can be. They have no clue who Pelagius was. They don't even know what Pelagianism is. The concept enters in, the original name is dropped, and it just becomes called, well, Christianity, they don't know anything different. 
right? That's what, that's just what happens. It, c- it comes into Christianity. So I'm saying that this view and its, and its pure form should scare everyone to death. I'm saying there's a kind of a watered down version that is still present in, m- in the minds of many Christians. And it goes basically like this, God's law. What does most Christians say about God's law? You can do it. Why can you do it? Because of the gospel. Meaning that the gospel is infused and not imputed. Even if they say give lip service to imputed, it becomes about what it can give you the power to do. And then how do you know you're lost or saved? Based on what you do, how well you keep the law, which then turns salvation into a salvation by works and not of grace. Therefore, the entire gospel is destroyed, law is destroyed, everything is eradicated, and you end up with something. You basically, you know what you end up with? What do we end up with in that view? Roman Catholicism. That's where you end up. All right, does, does everybody see that? We're not even going to be able to get to the thesis, but that's okay. We, so we, let's just make, let's make sure we're, we, we, we'll, just, we'll just do a review. I want to get to the thesis, but that's okay, because this is important. This took a lot longer than I thought. What? Um, well, I mean, they only quote from one page. Right. So, I mean, we'd have to go through the whole book and highlight every issue and every problem. But I I don't even need wild at heart. You can hear this kind of concept on Christian radio Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's talked about sermon after sermon. It's over. It's it's got Diane was talking about they were hearing something on the Christian radio, basically saying you can do this. And guess what? You can do it. You can do it. It's like it's just never ending. It's it's law, 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 law with the concept that you have the ability to obey the law. It's just the way Christianity preaches. That's how come when I hear when I hear someone say the word antinomian, I just literally want to just burn buildings to the ground because I'm like, where is the antinomian? Show me the antinomian. Because every sermon is what? Come on, every sermon that you've ever heard. Do this, 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 do this. Clearly demonstrating antinomianism is not the problem, okay? The, the issue is we're already so law-minded. So let's make sure we are like, we've got to have this down, okay? We've got, I mean, we have to have this down. Because our entire study blows up if we don't have this concept down, okay? Everybody with me? All right. View number one is a view that says that even that we have a depraved, we have corruption. Let's just use the word corruption. We are depraved. And even after conversion, what remains? Corruption. Corruption remains. And no matter what good we do, it still, from the standard of God, falls what? Short. Right? Because God's standard is what? Perfection, right? So it, it, for, to please God, it would require what? Personal, perfect, exact, entire, perpetual. Do we ever accomplish that? No. Now, God may accept our work, but he accepts our work 
Because it's by faith and we have what imputed to our account? Imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness, okay? So, but I'm just saying that our work by his standard is always going to fall short. It's always going, it's never done pure. It's never done pure, right? And so this view maintains what? It maintains the need. Why does the first view maintains a need for law? Why does the first view maintain a need for law? Because we continue to sin, right? We continue to sin in the first view, yes? So I need to continue to see the law so that I can continue to see the reality of said sin. And and now why do I need the gospel? Because I keep sinning. So what do I need to be reminded of every time I, I read my Bible and realize that I'm a sinner? I need to know that my salvation is not based on what I do, but it's based on what Christ did and that I'm covered in his imputed righteousness. So the first view needs law and gospel and there must be a proper distinction between the two. Yes? The second view comes along and the second view says what? After salvation, a completely new heart. The old is completely gone. Remember we talked about this when we looked at the passage in Ezekiel? But the stony heart being replaced with a heart of flesh. Remember that? Okay. We spent like two hours on this. All right. So we, uh, we, we have a completely new heart. Everything's good. We, we're good at the very core of our being. And, 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 and the logical thing that should flow from that is good. I mean, the fact that he quoted Luke 6 is utterly insane to me because that actually disproves his own theory. Because what do we see in, in the lives of people? Sin, meaning that we're not good, okay? Because something is flawed inside of us, right? Something is flawed inside of us. So in this view, if this view was correct, what happened, what's the purpose of law in this view, if this view is correct? Just confirm how good we are. We don't have to worry about it showing anything bad. Why do we have to not worry that the law would show us anything bad? Because we're good at the very core of our being. We're a new creature. The old is completely gone. All right? And then secondly, what would be the purpose of gospel? There wouldn't be a need for one, but they make gospel into what? Gospel becomes the source of the power which changes you so that you can keep the law, turning gospel into an infused concept and not an imputed one. Does that make sense? Therefore, law, listen, law and gospel are obliterated and you end up with a works-based system that's basically Roman Catholicism. Are, 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 we, are, are we good on that? Any questions? All right, are we, are we good? Well, we're going to have to stop. Now, he gives some more passages about the, the, new, the new person and how we're, we're different, but let's make sure we understand this. Like, for example, just 2 Corinthians 5.17. How do we understand 2 Corinthians 5.17? Yeah, that I am to perceive a person by faith as a new creature. The old is gone. All things are new. That's how I am to treat them because there is a, re- there is a truth to that and that truth is what? Their positional reality. Practically, they're not. But I am to view them in light of their position, not in light of their practice. 
That's the only way to understand it, because any other way of understanding does what? Nobody is saved. Because what, how quickly, if I use 2 Corinthians 5.17 the way it's typically used, how quickly could I prove that you're not saved? The minute I see something that, that would, we, uh, would be in line with what? The old nature. The minute I see anything. Bad attitude, I mean anything. Disrespect, lack of submission, lack of love, lack of patience. Anything that, that shows the old nature, I'd be like, well, you're not saved because the old is gone. Why is the old showing up in your life? Now, a lot of times people who quote 2 Corinthians that way won't take it to its logical conclusion. Because on one hand, they'll be like, you are a new creature, there will be change. And you're like, ooh, you're right, there will be change. But if, you're lo- if you take it to its logical conclusion, that change will be what? Perfect, complete, exact, entire, and perpetual because the old is completely gone. But the very people who will slap their hands and say, there will be a change, demonstrates constantly in their lives that there is still what? The old nature. Meaning, stop quoting 2 Corinthians to me, okay? Because you're not living. Here's the thing. Don't quote 2 Corinthians to me. In fact, I've said this the entire series, right? Don't argue with me. What have I said? Show me. Show me. And how, what do you have to do? Be perfect. And I said, well, no, 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 no. We're not saying that we'll be perfect. So what are you saying? And then they cannot, art- and then they get frustrated because they can't really articulate how much change proves it, how much change doesn't prove it. But here's what they'll do. They'll start, all the argument turns into what? That I'm proving my salvation on the basis of What? When, you, when that, that argument starts, what do they almost all go to? What proves your salvation? You do. What you do. Meaning, what, then, what is the gospel about then? It's, imputed righteousness supposedly doesn't prove anything. It's like, wait a minute. How, who can lay a charge at God's elect? Why? No, quote the verse. God justifies. That's what the scripture says, right? In Romans, no man can lay a charge at God's elect because it is God who justifies. How does God justify? It's a forensic justification, right? It's a legal declaration thereby thereby I am declared to be perfectly righteous because of a righteousness given to me by faith. Has nothing to do with anything I do. So if you come to me and go, there will be a change, I look at you like, it is changed in my position perfectly. You say, well, no, 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 you've got to do this, you've got to do this. Well, then it comes down to, wait a minute, then how does an imputed righteousness produce a practical righteousness? Because imputed does not produce practical. So then they say, no, 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 it's not. Okay, no, something else gives it. And if you, get, and if you watch, slowly but surely, if something else is giving the power, what does it turn into? If someone says that you're saved and you get some power to do something, what does that turn into? An infused righteousness. 
right? It becomes an infused righteousness. And the minute it becomes an infused righteousness, you've destroyed the entire Protestant Reformation. And it's bizarre that someone could say they're Reformed and deny the very Reformed doctrine of justification by an imputed righteousness. And it's all because they, they, they cannot bring themselves to believe that someone could be saved and not be as good as they are. But the people who usually argue that are the very people who don't want to be examined in any meaningful way because if you start digging into their life, guess what you're going to find? I'd like, you probably should back up a little bit because if we really dig into your life, you know what we're going to find? You're probably not saved because that's what we would find in all of our lives, right? I mean, how much sin do I have to find to call into question someone's salvation? So then they say, well, no, 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 no. It's just if you're going in the right direction. So then they try to water it down to the point that you're saying, then why are you disagreeing with me? Because you're basically saying there doesn't really have to be that much of a change because you've now watered it down to the point that it's useless. So then either there's a change or there's not a change and, you're, and it becomes a, a, a mess. So it's just crazy how they'll, they'll, uh, when they start talking, they're way over here, like so bold and strong. And by the time you're done... They've watered down even their test to the point of nothing. But the only way you can pass the test is it would require what? Basically, it would require the idea that you have a completely new heart and you, now the old is gone. And because as long, if you keep demanding that there's all this change, you have to exp- explain to me where it's coming from. <laughs> And the minute you say, well, because you have a new nature, you have a new heart, then I simply say, well, can't the new nature and the new heart be sinless? And the minute you say it can't be sinless, that means that what? Sin is, is more powerful than what? The new nature and the new heart. So then how can I test a new, a new nature and a new heart to prove someone's salvation if you've already acknowledged that the old nature and the sin is more powerful than the new nature? If I'm testing someone and I already know that the bad is more powerful than the good, then my test is always going to demonstrate what? That there's more bad than good. <laughs> okay, that's the, that's the only logical conclusion. So, but I just want you to see, because the last time we covered this, I didn't really go into how it impacts law and gospel. I just want you to leave here tonight knowing how it impacts law and gospel, right? In the first view, law and gospel maintains its proper distinction and its correct use, yes? The law demonstrates the fact that we're still sinning, and the gospel is our only hope and comfort. In the second view, law becomes nothing more than a way to prove how good you are, and gospel just becomes the source of why you have the power to be good which then destroys the imputed righteousness of the gospel. Destroying, so therefore you destroy law and you destroy gospel. I hope that makes sense. I wanted, to finish the, I wanted to finish the thesis, but that took much longer. I thought it was going to take like 15 minutes and we would be done, but that took longer. But hopefully now that answered all the questions, I hope. Are, are you sure? If there's any questions, because I'd rather you ask now than the next time I review it, everybody's looking at me like I've lost my... Mind. Okay. No questions online. All right. No questions here. 
All right, then the next time I review this, you three better get all the answers right, okay? That's the law, okay? Y'all have to be, your answers have to be what? Perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual, okay? From this point forward, whenever we review this point, you three better get it right because you're now a new creature and the old wrong thing of thinking... <laughs> no, no, we're gonna th- forget. Per- no, we're not talking positional. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm not viewing you that way at all. I'm gonna be like, come on, guys. Remember that Wednesday night when it took an hour to go back over that? Okay. No, you're not. I'm gonna be like, what's wrong with you? You're- the law is condemning you guys. Okay, you're falling short of the test. Okay, but that's how the law actually works, right? It constantly shows us how, how far we've fallen. Okay, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. We, are, we definitely acknowledge that there are things in the word that seem so confusing and confounding when it comes to this topic. But I hope everyone listening and everyone in this room would acknowledge we're all still sinners. We fall short in every area of our life in some way, shape, or form. And we know that without the gospel, we would have no comfort, we would have no hope, we would have no peace, and we would have no salvation. I hope that we always maintain the truthfulness of the reality of our own lives, and that makes the glory and the sweetness of the gospel that much more profound. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...